Okay, resurrection day, and uh, I think the Lord could have planned the songs more, more perfectly than He did. And we had no idea what was going to happen. Um, there were some things in the last song that uh, were a little bit off as far as the atonement view, and hopefully you uh, you saw those things. And and if you have any questions about them, we can talk about them later. But um, obviously the plucking out of hand and things like that are things that we've discussed here before in, in the past. And <clears throat> we know that. Uh, let me just ask you a question. How do we know, according to Jesus in Matthew 7, that we're on the rock? What's that? We do his will. That's right. He said, uh, he that hears my commandments and does them, to him I will liken to be someone who's on the rock. But to him who hears my commandments and does not do them, I will liken to him to someone who's on sinking sand. Okay. And we know that Romans 8, 1 says that there's uh, therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. Okay, so, as I prayed about this week, and, and uh, you know, oftentimes when you have a, kind of like a holiday type thing, you'll, a pastor will kind of change it up a little bit and, and go to something that's more theme-oriented, but I just, I just didn't sense the Lord's leading in that direction, so I just want to continue on in Matthew chapter 11. Uh, we're going to finish Matthew 11 today, but let's let's review from last week. Uh, we went Matthew 11, <clears throat> 1 through 19, and we saw in this that John the Baptist, who was called the greatest man born among women, um, he had some doubts. He had some doubts about Jesus, and uh, it goes to show you that no matter what place you get to in life as a Christian, you're always susceptible to temptation. You should never let your guard down in life. The devil prowls around like a lion waiting to devour those whom he's trying to prey on. He's looking to do that. So we should never get to this point where we say, well, I'm okay in this area or that area. We should always have our guard up. Be ready, because as soon as you put your guard down, Devil's been around for six thousand years with all of his 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 demons, and they're going to try to attack you. So we must always have our guard up, the shield of faith, to do, deflect the arrows of the enemy. So we saw that that John had some doubts, and Jesus answered him, and 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 his the people who came to uh, Jesus on John's behalf, John's disciples. Uh, the, he answered him, said, "Look at what I'm tell John what I'm doing." And when Jesus, Jesus talked about the things he was doing, what was he referencing to when he mentioned these things? Okay, but more simply, what, what is he trying to put, point him back to? He's pointing him back to Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. He's simply telling John the Baptist's disciples, point John the Baptist back to these things that the Old Testament says the Messiah will do. And I'm doing those very things. So he didn't answer it directly, but he answered it uh, with something that John the Baptist would have known what he was talking about. And we saw that John the Baptist was a type of Elijah. Now, was he the Elijah who is to come? No. In what sense was John the Baptist Elijah? Spirit, 
Spirit and power. He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But he's not Elijah himself. And is Elijah coming back? When's he coming back? What's he going to be a part of? One of the one of the two witnesses, yes. That Revelation talks about. And Malachi 4 prophesies about his coming back. And we saw the, the, the parallel here. We have the first time Elijah came back, someone who came in the spirit and power of Elijah, when the first time Jesus came, and they both suffered. And the second time they come, Elijah actually come this time, he will cause other people to suffer by the flames that come from his mouth. And whether that's little or not, I don't really know, but he's going to bring suffering upon the world. Elijah will, when he comes back. And then when Jesus comes back, he will bring suffering upon the world. Those who are disobedient. Yeah, and there's probably even more things they're going to do. Uh, and there will be a point in time where Elijah will finally die. And the, the world will, will praise that they're, that they're dead. And say, thank God that these two are dead who tormented us. It sounds kind of ironic. Sounds very familiar to me. They were at the Lady Gaga concert recently, and the people there acted as if we were tormenting them by our very presence, by the words we said, by the tracks we held out, by the banners we held. They acted as if we were tormenting them. Which, Lydia, if someone is if someone is in their sin, and their conscience is saying stop it, and the Holy Spirit saying stop it, and the world is saying this is unnatural if you're a homosexual, stop it. The Holy Spirit, the, the Bible saying stop. The preacher saying stop. And all the world saying stop it. They're battling all these things and they're still reject, 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 reject. Of course they feel tormented. Because they love their sins, something that's unnatural to them they shouldn't be doing in the first place. They do feel tormented when they hear the truth. And that's why Jesus said the whole world hated him. Testify that their works are evil. And then we saw at the end of, of this passage we talked about last week that no matter what mode you come in, whether you're a prophet out in the desert, or whether you're someone who sits and eats with the tax collectors and the sinners, they are not satisfied. They will try to find some kind of excuse to blame you for why they're not coming to God. So Jesus said, he said, John the Baptist came uh, neither eating nor drinking, you said he has a demon. So the Son of Man came eating and drinking, you said he has a demon, he's a glutton. And a wine bibber. You know, so that this is what the, the world always trying to find some kind of excuse for why they won't come to him. And, uh, you know, oftentimes I'll, I'll say in the open air, I'll say, you know, what's stopping you from coming to Christ? And they'll say, you are. And I said, well, you're not going to have that excuse on Judgment Day. You're not going to have that excuse on Judgment Day. You can't say that guy was, uh, wasn't very smart or his delivery wasn't good or, you know, you're not going to be able to say that. God will ask you, why didn't you repent? That's what he'll ask the sinners in Judgment Day. Why didn't you repent? Why didn't you heed my messenger? Okay, so that's the review for, from last week. And this we're going to go through Matthew 11, verses 20, all the way through 30. Let's go ahead and read that. <clears throat> and we'll go from there. Then he, Jesus, began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which are done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, 
it'll be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in a day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works that are done in you have been done in Sodom, it would have, been, would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in a day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, they have hidden these things from the wise and prudent, and they have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. For no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for, my, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So we see here, right off the bat, we've got to dispel a myth here. There's a myth going around that Jesus only rebuked, he was only hard, only spoke hard words to Pharisees and Sadducees and religious leaders. We see him here rebuking whole cities. And these cities, if you read back over the Gospels and Jesus' activity in these cities, they didn't try to throw him off a cliff. They didn't try to stone him. They weren't uh, violent in the rejection of him and his message. They were simply apathetic and indifferent. And yet Jesus had a rebuke for them. So this idea going around that Jesus was only hard or only rebuked Pharisees and religious leaders and hypocrites is not true. He rebuked whole cities of people who heard his truth, were somewhat receptive to what he had to say, but were indifferent or apathetic towards the message. And Capernaum, we've learned from the past of going through Matthew, was where he had his home base for his ministry. That's where Peter lived. And if you were to go to the back of your, your Bible and look at your map, you'd see that all three of these cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and uh, and Capernaum are all on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, all in the same area. It's where he did a lot of his ministry. So these people uh, rejected him, but they were indifferent or apathetic. And I'll tell you, those people are going to have a hard time on Judgment Day. People who hear the truth day in and day out and don't repent and don't get right with God. And let it dull their ears. Let it harden their hearts as God calls out to them. Why won't you repent? Why won't you get right with me? They say, I'll do it later. I'll put it off a little bit. I'll become apathetic and indifferent. And you'll find you'll become dull of hearing at some point in time. Where in that area of your life, God can't even reach you anymore because you're so apathetic very dangerous place to be. And Jesus had hard rebukes for such people. And this word rebuke, the Greek word means to find fault in a way that demeans someone. It means to revile. It means to mock. It means to reproach. That's what it means. That's what the Greek word means. To reproach, to revile, to find fault in a way that demeans others, to mock. And these, pe these cities, the people of these cities, heard the Son of God Himself speaking to them. 
did many wonders and miracles in their midst. Remember the man who took his friends up the tile off the roof and brought them down and Jesus said, walk away? That was done in these, one of these cities. Many wonders were done in these cities. Proving that he was the Son of God. It just goes to show you that sometimes no matter how much influence you give someone, they're still not going to repent. When Christ comes and reigns for a thousand years, there will be unbelievers on the earth that still won't repent. And when, Christ, and when the devil comes back after a thousand years, or at least for a short period of time, he'll go out and deceive the nations again. And they'll be so, so moronic that they'll actually rise up and go to the city and try to attack the king of kings, who's in the flesh. That's what the Bible says in Hebrews many times. Today, if you hear his voice, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Remember, we went through that passage. We're talking about once they've always stayed. We went through that passage. And the people who were talking about in the Old Testament, they, they finally said, okay, we're going to repent. And God said, no, it's too late. You're going to die in the desert anyway. It's too late. Don't play with the grace and mercy of God. Don't play with the cross and the gospel message. If you hear his voice, if you're under conviction, if God is drawing you near, repent. Stop playing with your sins. Stop playing with the cross. That's what these people of these cities did for the most part. They played around with the words of the Son of God. And therefore he rebuked them. Tyre and Sidon are two Phoenician cities, heathen, pagan cities, on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. In fact, Tyre if I understand properly, is actually on an island which is three-quarters of a mile off the mainland. They were very well known for their purple cloth. These were Phoenician cities. If you, go, if you, you do this on your own time, but Ezekiel 26 through 28 is a passage you want to read regarding these two cities where Ezekiel, under the inspiration of God, declared judgment upon them and said what judgment would come upon them. And it happened. God brought it forth swiftly. And the, the Israelites would have looked back on Tyre and Sidon and said, look, look at them. They're wicked cities. They're evil cities. It'd almost be like a person who's indifferent towards the gospel looking at New Orleans and saying, look, look how wicked that city is. God destroyed it with a flood. Which is basically what he did. He wiped out New Orleans. It's still, still in bad shape to this day. And it'd be like someone who hears the gospel all their life, being apathetic towards the gospel, and then pronouncing judgment upon uh, New Orleans and saying, look at them, they're so wicked. And Jesus is saying to these people of this city, look, you think that they're worse than you? You have the Son of God talking to you face to face, doing miracles in your presence, and you reject. You reject. You're worse off than they are. And this, this whole... It'll be more tolerable for a tire inside on a day of judgment than you. Brings about this very important teaching of this. There's degrees of punishment in hell. Now we talked before about how greater knowledge equals greater accountability. Greater knowledge not obeyed equals greater judgment. We talked about that many times. But here we have no, no, kind of a different aspect here. That there's, there's greater uh, aspects of judgment in hell. And I want to talk about it just a little bit. 
And let's, let me give you some scriptures to kind of back up this besides what we see here. Uh, Luke chapter 12 and verses 47 through 48. It's talking about the uh, faithful and the evil servant. And Jesus says at the end of this, towards the end of this parable, And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know that committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, to whom much is given, from him much will be required. To whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. Then we have in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 24. Which says this. The Son of Man indeed goes just as is written of him. But woe to that man, speaking of Judas, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Not been born. Because he betrayed the Son of Man. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 14. Jesus pronouncing woes on the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Greater condemnation. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 29. In fact, we'll start in verse 20. It's a very scary passage for those who claim to be Christians and yet are walking in open rebellion towards God or indifference towards His commandments. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 26. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses, Moses' law, dies without mercy on testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose... Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? Or how much worse punishment do you suppose? Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? We have Second Peter chapter 2. And here we have introduced into our vocabulary a different word used to describe the afterlife for the ungodly. It's called Tartarus. And in, in Tartarus, in Greek mythology, it was the worst, deepest, darkest part of hell, of the punishment for the wicked. And it's the only time we see it used in all the Bible. But Peter is using it in regards to false teachers and falling angels. So 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow the destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and destruction does not slumber. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, 
but cast them down to hell. There's a Greek word Tartarus there. And deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So the fallen angels who have the greatest knowledge will have the greatest judgment. And false teachers are lumped in together with them, as you see here in the context, with them. If you go over to uh, verse 17, it talks about false teachers once again all throughout this passage here. I'm not going to read through the whole thing, all up to verse 17. And it says in verse 17 about the false prophets. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And the blackness of darkness is simply describing what Tartarus is. It's the worst, worst parts of hell. It's where the people will have the greatest judgment possible. And who, who it's reserved for are false teachers and for fallen angels. Okay? Jude also speaks about this. Go to Jude, just a few uh, books back. And we'll see it in Jude, verses 12 and 13. Talking about false teachers once again. These are spots in your love feasts. While they feast without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds. Late autumn trees without fruit. Twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. Wandering stars, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Once again, greater knowledge equals greater accountability. Greater knowledge not obeyed equals greater condemnation. There are degrees of punishment in hell. There are degrees. There isn't just one big lake where everybody's just swimming around with the same kind of punishment. There are greater degrees of punishment in hell. The Bible makes this very clear. And these people who heard Jesus speak, he's not telling them they have no chance now. The fact that they're still alive means they have a chance. But Jesus is giving them strong words because their chances are running out. They are hardening their hearts. They are becoming apathetic and indifferent. That's a dangerous place to be in. To hear the gospel day in and day out, to see miracles, signs, and wonders done, and not repent. And not repent. And then it talks about Capernaum who are exalted to heaven. Now, being exalted to heaven is probably just referring to the fact that they had Jesus' ministry there, his presence there, his miracles there. That's probably what it's referring to. He was there the most, more than any place else. And he tells them it'll be, it'll be more dangerous in Judgment Day for them than for Sodom. And the Israelites, you know, they would look on Sodom and Gomorrah as being the worst of the worst. You know, they were going after strange flesh. They were men who came to Lot's door and banged on the door and said, let the stranger come out to us so we can know him carnally. They were full of homosexuals. They were violent and angry and wanted to rape people who they didn't even know who came into the city. It's because they were new people and they were going after strange flesh, the Bible says. But yet Jesus says, this is going to be insulting to them. Sodom will have an easier judgment day than you, Capernaum. Now, let's, think about, let's take a step back and think about it a second. Now, does this, does this mean, because Tyre and Sidon, Jesus says, would have repented long ago if I was there doing these things in their midst. And does this mean that Jesus doesn't love Tyre and Sidon? Does this mean that he, doesn't want, he didn't want them to repent back long ago? No, the Bible says that when Christ came, he came at just the right time. So God has a plan and purpose as to why Jesus came 
at the time he did. And this is God's actual sovereignty in action here. We hear sovereignty talked a lot about a lot in Christian circles. And oftentimes it's given the wrong definition. But we already have God's actual sovereignty in place, where he decided when he was going to send his son. Even though he knows if he would have sent his son to Tyre and Sidon long ago, they would have repented. That was not the right time, according to God's sovereign will, to send his son into the world. It does not mean that he didn't love Tyre and Sidon, did not want to repent, or not give them time to repent. He simply meant he gave them the knowledge they needed, and they didn't obey the knowledge they had. So he had no obligation to give them more knowledge. He had no obligation to give them more knowledge. Same with Sodom. If the mighty works were done in you, had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But he had no obligation to send his son to Sodom to do miracles, signs, and wonders and preach the gospel. Because Sodom didn't obey the knowledge they had. So, you know, this, this tells us that, you know, these, Sodom was full of homosexuals. They tell us there's hope for them. Although they may not repent on their own, if someone goes to them, maybe they will repent. And 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 10 gives, gives, gives some, uh, some insight to this too, that some people in Corinth used to be homosexual and sodomites. Some people would have you believe that homosexuals and sodomites are, are reprobates automatically. Not so. I know a man who's an open-air preacher now used to be a, a homosexual and a sodomite. There's hope for them in Jesus Christ. But we must go to them and preach to them. We shouldn't give up on them. It's because a lot of them are violent or angry or have an agenda. It does not mean God can't reach down into the muck and mire and pull them out and cleanse them. And then Jesus talks about who the Father has chosen to reveal the truth to. Now I want you to, I want you to, to see something here, very important. That we see God's sovereignty talked about here, God's decision and election on what he's decided he's going to do. And that in this passage, Jesus is chosen to reveal the truth to who? Who does it say he's chosen to reveal the truth to? in this passage, in verse 25 and 26. Unto, go ahead, Daniel. To babes. To the humble. That's who God has chosen out of his sovereign will to reveal the truth to. Now notice it doesn't say here that he makes certain people babes and certain people not babes. He doesn't make certain people uh, wise and prudent in the eyes of the world, and certain people humble in the eyes of the world. He doesn't choose who will be those things. He simply chooses whom he will reveal the truth to. And he's chosen to reveal the truth, not to those who are wise and prudent, but to those who are babes. And this is true sovereignty. True sovereignty is not uh, choosing who's going to be a babe and who's going to be wise and prudent in the eyes of the world. Not choosing who's going to tr trust in Christ and who isn't going to trust in Christ and making some trust and making some not trust. The true sovereignty of God is saying, I'm going to reveal my will to this type of person. 
I'm going to give salvation to those who are in Christ. But I don't choose who's going to be in Christ and who's not going to be in Christ. So true sovereignty in the biblical scope is not choosing who's going to be in Christ and who's not going to be in Christ. It's simply saying, as Ephesians 1 talks about, that God will save all of those who are in Christ. True sovereignty is not choosing who's going to be a babe, humble, and who's going to be wise and prudent in the eyes of the world. It's choosing, I'm going to reveal my will to this type of person. It's only this type of person who will receive my will. Let me give you some scriptures to kind of talk about this a little bit. Matthew 18, and verses uh, 1 through 4. That time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child. Carry in. Come here. Come here. Come on, hurry up. Then Jesus called a little child to him and set her in the midst of them and said, Assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as a little child, as little children, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. By no means. Matthew 19, in verse 13. And little children were brought to him, that he might put his hands on them and pray for them. And the disciples rebuked him and said, They're sinners, get them away from you. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Thank you, sweetie. Go back and sit down, okay? So Jesus says in Matthew 18, unless you become like little children. But he doesn't say, I'm going to make you become like a little child and not you become like a little child. He's putting the decision in their hands. Saying, become as little children, unless you become as little children and become converted, you'll enter the kingdom of heaven. So that's what he's saying here. And then we see in uh, Romans chapter 1 and verse 22, that professing themselves to be wise, they became... Fools. But why did it say before that? Why, why did they become fools? Because they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. Suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. That's the problem that Sodom and Gomorrah had. That's the problem Tyre and Sidon had. They suppressed the truth. They had truth. They had natural revelation from God. They knew God existed. They knew what he demanded of them because the, God's law was written upon their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and they rejected the knowledge they had. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this is a great passage regarding this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 27. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Wise and prudent, there you go. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has God not made, has not God made the foolish, made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolish of the message priest to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, 
And the weakness of God, weaknesses of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that many are wise according to the flesh, that many mighty, that many noble who are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. So God chooses the foolish things of the world, the weak things of the world, but he doesn't choose who will be foolish in the eyes of the world and who will be weak in the eyes of the world. He doesn't choose or make you be that way. He says, those are the ones who will be my disciples. Because they're humble enough to realize that they were foolish in my eyes. Even though the world says they're wise. They're foolish. And we must humble ourselves to become saved. We must realize that. First uh, Corinthians chapter 3 and verses 18 through 20. Let no one deceive himself. Anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For as written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, they are futile. So the ones to whom Jesus, the ones to whom the Father has chosen to reveal the truth to, are the babes. But you choose whether you're going to be a babe or whether you're going to be wise and prudent in the eyes of the world. Because, let's be honest, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God unto salvation. So you go in the open air and you're preaching, or sharing the gospel in the streets, and you're that's fool, that's, that's stupid. Well, I, I know you're perishing. I know your heart isn't prepared for the gospel. You're not ready. You need to humble yourself. That's why many people will go to destruction because of their pride. Because of their pride. I thought you say to those of you who are saved. Why did you say that? In First Corinthians chapter one? Oh well it's probably it's probably referring to final salvation. Um, I mean there is there is a sense where, you know, we are saved. We stand we're justified, we stand right before God. But we must endure to the end. To be saved. Yeah, so... Yeah, who are being saved is the power of God. That's right. Good point. Yeah, so we, mu we must realize that there is a final salvation. We must persevere to the end to be saved. If we don't persevere to the end, we won't be saved. We won't be saved. Which means there could be a time where you could depart from the faith and you won't persevere. Because otherwise, Jesus wouldn't say that. It'd be worthless words. So Jesus says, all these things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, or does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. He's already told you who the Son wills to reveal him. To babes. That's who the one. And now Jesus makes a call to these people. He gives a further description, I believe, of who these people are who will come to him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Heavy laden with sin. Heavy laden with guilt. Heavy laden with condemnation. Heavy laden with works-based religion. Go into the confession booth and, Father, I've done this, that, this, and that. Well, go do this, that, this, and that, and then you'll be forgiven. What a load of nonsense. The blood of Jesus Christ is what cleanses us of our sins. Not to say that a Christian won't do works. Of course, James says we will do works if we have the right kind of faith. 
but those works don't save you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now let's, let's talk about two different yokes here. Now you must understand what a yoke is. Okay, a yoke is if you have two big oxen pulling a plow. They didn't have tractors back in those days. They didn't have New Hollands or anything like that. So they had, they had two, a yoke of oxen. So this yoke was this thing that went over top of both the oxen and kept them together. So if one oxen was stronger than the other oxen, if he pulled this way, there's only two options. Either the yoke's going to break, unlikely, or this oxen's going with it, whether he likes it or not. So we have this yoke over top of the, uh, of the two oxen. And there's really only two yokes that you can have on you. You can have the yoke of the devil, of the sin, of the world, and the flesh, or you have the yoke of Jesus Christ. Let's compare the two. Because you're going to be pulled, one, I'll tell you this, both are stronger than you. So you're going to be pulled one direction or the other. Okay? Uh, the yoke of the devil. This master hates you. If you're under this yoke. He doesn't love you. He hates you. It's a yoke of sin. A yoke of bondage. A yoke of condemnation. A yoke of hell. A yoke of misery. A yoke of enmity towards God. A yoke of eternal torment in the end. A yoke of the burden of sin. A yoke of being run ragged in sin. Run ragged in sin. But then we have the yoke of Jesus, which he describes here. This master loves you. He has your best uh, will in mind. He has the best good for you in mind. It's a yoke of holiness. A yoke of forgiveness and mercy. A yoke of freedom. True freedom. Freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want to do. Freedom is walking in God's will. That's true freedom. Doing what you're meant to do. A yoke of eternal life. A yoke of reconciliation. A yoke of peace. For the miserable. A yoke of joy. For the person who's been run ragged. A yoke of sin, burden, lifted. A yoke of rest. Oh, how I remember that day. When my sins were lifted. And I really think, this is one of the reasons I like this movie of The Pilgrim's Progress, because he had this big weight on his back, and it was just getting bigger and bigger, and then all of a sudden it was gone. And that's exactly the way I felt. This burden of sin on me, it was lifted. It was lifted. So those are the two yokes you have. The yoke of the devil and the yoke of Jesus. The yoke of the devil is weary and heavy laden with sin, condemnation, and judgment, and hell, and and just being run ragged, the burden of sin, you need the yoke of Jesus, it's easy. And it doesn't mean easy in a sense where it's going to be simple, or it's going to be uh, something that uh, this life is going to be easy to deal with. It just means comfortable, uh, benevolent, good is what that Greek word means. My burden is light. Your sin burden is lifted. But the burden is light. And 1 John 5, 3 says, This is love of God. That we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. So if someone has the idea that keeping God's commandments are a burden to them, they're probably not yoked together with Jesus. Because Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. 
You have to get that picture of the yoke in your mind. Either you're yoked together with the devil and you're being pulled down to the flames of hell, or you're together with Jesus and he's pulling you as you're resting in him. You're allowing him to do the work through you. You're walking with him, but he's pulling it. His, his will, he's pulling the work. He's the stronger oxen. You're just going along with him. And if his commandments are a burden to you, you're not walking according to the Spirit. You're trying to do it in your own power. You're acting as if Jesus is some dead weight. You're trying to pull him along with you. But Jesus isn't the dead weight. You should be the dead weight and allow Jesus to pull you. That's what walking according to the Spirit is. Okay, so just, just review real quick, and then we'll get to, if you have questions or objections or anything like that, then uh, we'll get to that here in a second. But Jesus rebuked not just Pharisees, not just religious leaders, not just hypocrites. He rebuked the indifferent. He rebuked the apathetic. He rebuked those who somewhat received him, but not fully. Beware of yourself. Listen very carefully. You're sitting in a home fellowship. You're, you're part of a family who loves you and is uh, raising you in the will of God. If you're not saved yet, you could, or you're in danger of being like them. You're in danger of being like them. Becoming apathetic and different. Becoming dull to the hearing of the truth. Because you're not obeying it. You become dull to hearing the truth. We saw there's, there's degrees of punishment in hell. We saw there's a place called Tartarus. That's set apart for false teachers and for, and for the fallen angels. And we saw that true sovereignty, according to the Bible, is not God picking and choosing who's going to be saved or who's going to be a babe or who's going to be wise and prudent in the eyes of the world. But it's choosing what kind of person he will save. What kind of person he will reveal the truth to. To those who humble themselves, become like little children. If you don't become like a little child, you shall not be converted. And then finally, we saw the two yokes. And you don't want to have the wrong yoke there because the, whoever's on the yoke with you is going to pull you down, it's going to pull you in their direction. It's going to pull you in their direction. Okay. Now we're going to open the floor for. Questions or objections or anything anyone wants to add to what I said? To That's a city. Okay. Yeah, it's a city on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, very close to Capernaum, very close to uh, to Bethsaida. Yeah, he's rebuking the whole town, all three towns, because he did a lot of ministry in those towns, did lots of mighty works in those towns, uh, and they didn't repent, even though they were somewhat receptive to him. They weren't like his own hometown, trying to throw him off a cliff, or like Jerusalem, who wanted to stone him. They were receptive to him to some degree. They, they, they gathered around and listened to him. You know, but... Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. They don't do anything. Yeah. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Right.
And, Je and Jesus said that's who he really is talking to a lot of times. You notice his, his message. In Matthew 7, at the end, when he's giving his call to repentance, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, it's not those who hear my words, those who do my words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, want to come but he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. So he's talking to people who hear his words. He's not talking to the, the heathen who's never heard his words there. He's talking to those who have heard his words. As those who will have greater judgment. I had a question about um, the Matthew 18 okay. um, verse there. 18, verse 3. And uh, assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Right. And, you know, like, like you said, unless you humble yourself like a little child, you right. will not be converted. Unless you become like a little child, right? Right. You won't enter the right. Um, so the becoming like a little child and the and the conversion are different. I think they're really they're simultaneous. Probably. I mean, I don't know how much we can separate. It's kind of like repentance and faith. I don't know how much you can separate that either. They're really two sides of the same coin. Um, you know. So I, I think as maybe there might be a process of someone becoming like a little child, but once they have become there, I mean. They're to the point of conversion, I would say. That's what I mean. I, yeah. I was not thinking about the conversion part is the part that God transforms you. Right. And the, the becoming like a little child is the part. Your part. That's a good point. That'd be like our part. Yeah, the conversion is definitely Jesus' God's part. And um, the problem some people have who believe in free will, especially moral government people, they kind of dumbed down the conversion process and it was almost as if it just dumbed down to a choice someone makes. Now obviously there's a choice being made but there's a drawing of the Holy Spirit beforehand. There's a conviction. There's a process going on here. A drawing of the Holy Spirit, a convicting of the Holy Spirit and there's a hearing of the Word of God because you can't believe in the one you heard. So there's all these things going on but then there's our part of submitting to that and then after we've submitted to that, the moment we do, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, He cleanses our conscience, purifies our heart, and calls us to walk in His ways. Gives new desires. You know, so there, there's it's a synergistic thing here, but it, to, to go too far on the free will side is to almost make it monergistic in the other way, where God's not involved in it. So we must you know, stay in the biblical middle here. It's not monergistic in God's way, where God's doing everything. It's not monergistic in our direction, where we're doing everything. It's synergistic in all accounts because God's doing something and we're doing something. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that, that we get any glory for our salvation. God gets all the glory. Uh, he sought us out first. Um, and he's the one who does the converting. Uh, but we must repent. We must become like children. We must humble ourselves. The sacrifice of God, our broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. So that would be kind of like the same thing when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, repent yes. and be converted. Right. And he said, he said, save yourself from this wicked and perverse generation. So you see, two, they're going on there. And he said, you have received the Holy Spirit, he said. So there's a God doing thing. And God, he, he saw God was working hard because their, their heart were pierced. They're cut to the heart. And, uh, you know, be, but even being cut to the heart doesn't mean you have to repent. You go to Stephen's situation in Acts 7, they were cut to the heart. But they, they closed their ears and gnashed their teeth and stoned them to death instead. So the two different responses to being cut to the heart and being under conviction. Anger or submission, humbleness.
Right. Right. Rejected all the, the light that God was giving. A man full of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. As if God was speaking himself through one man to hear Stephen preach. And for them to be quiet that long and listen to that message. Right. God had to be doing something. It, it was that hard rebuke at the end where they just gnashed their teeth. Yeah, Saul originally responded in hatred too. He let the, the coach of the people who stoned him were at his feet, and he gave approval to it. And it wasn't until later on, I mean, maybe that did a work in his heart. Maybe he was thinking about this thing on the way to Damascus. I don't really know what was going on in his heart, but the fact is that he saw that. And it shows you even the worst of the worst. He was kicking against the goats. Oh, yeah. So that tells you that he was being goaded. Yes. Right? Yes. Was being kicked against the goats. So right. there was a struggle going on with him right. in this thing. That the Lord was doing the work ahead of time. Right. And it shows you the, the struggle going in, on internally is manifested in different ways in different people. Some respond in anger. Some respond in retaliation. But it's often the people who are the worst, who act the worst towards you under the heaviest conviction. It's often those people who are under the heaviest conviction. But that's a good point, brother, the, the synergi synergism you see there between, you know, God does do the converting. God does put the Holy Spirit. Uh, we don't do that, and that has to happen, otherwise you're not converted. In the New Testament, New Covenant sense, you're not converted. So. I think it's important to point out that after our conversion, we have this point of justification in the sanctification, people often say, well, we're growing, and when they're sometimes, sometimes people will use this as an excuse for the reason why they're sinning. Right. But I would say that it's more of, as God is teaching us, because we don't get all knowledge when we're going in the Holy Spirit. We, we get, obviously, we get knowledge, but we don't get all knowledge. And so as we're studying His Word, and the Holy Spirit is teaching each of us individually, that we grow in that faith and the knowledge and the understanding of the scriptures and we make adjustments to our life based on what the Bible says. Not what some man is telling you to do, but what the Holy Spirit through the scriptures is telling you to do. And it's so important for us as Christians, I'm really just learning this now, uh, for us to be so patient with people who are babes in Christ who may say all kinds of things, whether it's Calvinism or this or that, and, and they, they just they don't have an understanding yet and they're seeking but they're not coming to the full knowledge and understanding that you may be at at this particular moment in your walk. Right. And uh, so it's very, very important for us to, to deal with the, those of the household of faith with even greater patience and mm -hmm. greater care. Um, and uh, I've done that specifically. Yeah. You know, I just sometimes in the past it's just, you know, hey, man, get it right, you know. You're coming with me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can you can only obey what you know, and uh, we we definitely can't impose our sanctification process on someone else, because you know you're you're fourteen fifteen years in the faith now. I'm 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 fourteen years in the faith. You know, we're all different different ways along, and we we all learn different things along the way, and um, it's it's good to to teach those who are young in the faith and teach them the truth, but allow them time to adjust, just as God allowed us time to adjust. So, yeah, sanctification is not, uh, let's say someone became the Christ and they were a murderer, and they were a liar, and they were a thief. Let's say they were lying five times a week.
before they became a Christian. Sanctification is not lying, you know, four times a week, and then lying three times a week, and then lying two times a week, and then lying one time a week. That's not sanctification. Sanctification is you're giving up all your sin, and you, you obey the knowledge you have. If you sin, you have to the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. You can come back and confess and repent, but you're giving it all. You're not saying, well, this week I'll just give one, one time lying. Next week I'll give you know, one more time lying. You know, you're not doing that. You're giving it all up. And sanctification is growing in knowledge and understanding. As you grow in knowledge and understanding, you're in complete obedience to the knowledge you have. What God says to do, you do it. What God says not to do, you don't do it. And that's your heart towards God. And if you do sin, you come back to him in confession and repentance. It's not as if you're saying, oh, I'm going to do it again. Maybe I'll just do it one time. If you're saying, I don't ever want to do that again. I'm never going to do that again. That's your heart. And uh, a young man wrote me recently about this issue because he was concerned whether he was really repenting or not. And I, I told him, it seems like you're, because you he said, when I repent, it's, it's, I never want to do it again and I hate it. I said, well, that sounds genuine to me. I said, I don't know your heart, but that sounds genuine. I said, but what it sounds like the problem you're having here is you're not overcoming. You're not making adjustments. Remember that talked about temptation. The biblical doctrine of temptation, learning how to overcome temptation. And making adjustments. If you find yourself doing the same sin over and over again, you need to stop and think about it. what is, you know, what, what am I putting, my, what situation am I putting myself in that's causing me to be tempted and me to give in to this? What adjustments do I need to make along the way to make, ensure that I'm not continuing to give in to the same thing over and over again? You know, so there's there's repentance, but it's also uh, thinking about how to overcome it. Each individual thing. Not doing the same thing over and over again. Because repentance requires you to sit down and think about this and say, I need to stop doing this, period. Not to say, I, don't, I hate it, I don't want to do it, and have an emotional experience, but simply saying, God, I, don't want, I really don't want to do this. How can I stop this, God? You know, if, someone, if someone's having a problem uh, with... Well, here, here's, here's an example I'll give you. Let's say someone was a really bad liar before they became a Christian. And they lied about things they used to do. You know, maybe it's a guy who was a, a football star in high school. And he's had a knee injury. You know, he's past his glory days. And he, but he was, for such a long time, he lied about what he did in high school. Yeah, I caught this one-handed. I got this touchdown. I got this interception, whatever it may be. When he becomes a Christian, he realizes, oh, no, I've been lying about that all these years. So he has to constantly think about, well, what, how, what did I, I have to stop doing all these glory stories how did it really happen? And start telling the truth. Even go back to apologize people who he lied to and say, listen, I, that wasn't the truth. This is what I re really happened. I wasn't as good as I made myself to be. So there's a conscious thinking of it, I need to make a change here. They take a lot of effort at first when someone first becomes a Christian. They're going to overcome a certain sin. So the difference between repentance, never want to do it again, and making the change to adjustment to practical things to make sure it doesn't happen again. That must happen too. Amen. Right. And God will give wisdom on how to make adjustments too. He'll give wisdom. You know, a lot of men I know who are, who are Christians will they email me. It all, happens all the time. They email me I have a problem with lust. And I bet you anything, they're watching TV, or they're watching commercials, uh, or they're 
you know, on the internet and they don't have an internet filter or they, you know, or they're on late at night or, you know, they're, they're looking at things that, that's going to lead them to do things like that, to lust. They're not sitting down thinking, well, I'm going to lust today. But they're doing things that bring that to be, that bring that to pass. And they're not making the necessary adjustment. Get rid of cable. Get rid of the TV if you have to. Or, or at the least, maybe, maybe use a DVR and record that show you like to watch and don't watch the commercials. You know, there's almost the only things you can do that can help prevent you from falling into sin again. And we need to take these precautions. That's just a very, you know, vague example. Obviously, I don't, I don't even have, I think that stuff is wicked. I don't even have cable in my house because of how much wickedness is on it. You know? It's almost like in the cable, it's almost like they say, well, we have Pax Channel, we have, uh, you know, Angel This Channel, or Angel and TBN, and this little bit of holiness is going to overcome all this wickedness that's available to you right. at your disposal, 800 channels a day, around the clock, and you're subjecting your children, your families to this, and of course you, you couldn't possibly be able to monitor them, especially if you were working you know, outside the home full time and unable to monitor their activities all the time. And so you introducing not a little bit of leaven, mm. but lots of leaven into your home environment. Right. Which would be uh, just a horrible uh, testimony to your children. And, and, uh, sure. I have a question if we're, if we're finished with that. I have a question sure. about... Um, Okay. Willful sin. Right. And some people from this passage will, will say, well, you mean since you become a Christian, you never willfully sin. And uh, unfortunately, since becoming a Christian, I have willfully sinned. Mm -hmm. And so at, at that, uh, have I lost my salvation? Am I, am I deluding myself to think I'm I can continue in my faith and, and uh, still be saved in the end, mm -hmm. according to this passage, if I, if I interpret it that way. So I just want to hear your thoughts on that. I know you've discussed this before, but I'd like to hear it again. Well, every sin is willful. Okay? Uh, James 4.17 says, To him to, who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So for someone to, be, to sin, or for someone to be a sinner, they must have knowledge or understanding of what is required of them, and they must disobey that knowledge or understanding. So sin, once again, is disobeying the knowledge or understanding you have. Okay? Um, this is talking about a specific sin here, which is rejecting Jesus Christ. Which these Jewish people who, who I believe Paul is writing to here, they are Jewish Christians, and they're thinking about going back to their old covenant ways. They're thinking about going back to, because they're under lots of persecution from Jewish people. Band members, friends, this whole book is written to, to encourage people to persevere in the faith. And they're, they're, they're under lots of heavy persecution and pressure. And they're considering giving up Jesus Christ and going back to their old ways. The Old Testament Judaism, which is now apostate, because Old Testament Judaism by itself rejects Jesus Christ as the final sacrifice for sins. So that, that's why it says, trampling the Son of God underfoot, counting the blood of the covenant by which he, is, which he was sanctified, a common thing. So these people were, were Christians. They were sanctified by the blood. They have to be Christian. Who, who's sanctified by the blood? But Christians. But yet they, they're, they're getting to the point where they're about to reject it. They're thinking about it, considering it. Some of them probably already have rejected him. And because they rejected the only sacrifice for sins there is, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. 
So they can go to the temple. This is before AD 70, I'm assuming here, because Paul died in the 60s, before the temple was destroyed. They're, they're thinking about going back to making sacrifices again, which could not forgive, could not save, could not help them one bit. So they're rejecting the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which is the only sacrifice by which they can be saved, and going back to the other sacrifice, which actually can't save. That's why it says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, because they're rejecting the only sacrifice for sins there are. So it's talking about a specific willful sin. Not just any willful sin is talked about here, but the point I was making from this passage is that people will have a greater judgment. It says that uh, if you rejected Moses' testimony, you'd die without mercy on two or three witnesses. How much greater a judgment does someone have who turns away from the blood of Jesus Christ, who can sanctify them, who has sanctified them, and can save them and turn back to the Old Covenant? Such people have greater judgment. So I understand the, the, the difficulty with this passage, but the, the point I was making from this passage, I probably shouldn't have read the whole thing, but I brought a little confusion into it, but, or a, a side trip here, but uh, was the whole verse 29 of how much worse punishment. That's the point I'm really focusing on there in light of, this, light of what I was talking about. But yes, there, this is referring to rejecting the, a, a specific willful sin, rejecting the sacrifice of Jesus, and going back to the old sacrificial system, which there no longer remains any other sacrifice for sins. Those sacrifices can't help you anymore. And in all reality, according to Hebrews, the only thing they really did for you was bring about the reminder of sins every year. And God accepted it on your behalf, but according to Romans 3.25, you need the blood of Jesus Christ to even cleanse the Old Testament saints. It was retroactive to them as well. For those who died in the faith in the past. For we know him who said, His vengeance is mine, I will repay to the Lord, and, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Lord will judge his people. He's talking about the Jews there. He's talking about his people in the past. He will judge the Jews for rejecting his sacrifice. Even as they go on in the sacrifices that he commanded from the Old Testament, which are now done away with by the final sacrifice for sins. So not just talking about any sin. Now, obviously, uh, we believe that someone can lose their salvation. Uh, but if you want a pastor that talks about someone who has sinned uh, after becoming Christian, the best pastor I can talk about is James 5, 19 through 20, which says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, which literally means converts him, turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So there's lots of, things, lots of good truth in those two verses. Someone from the brethren can wander from the truth and become a sinner again. If someone from among the brethren comes to that one who was among the brethren, turns him back to be a brethren, he is saved from death and covers a multitude of sins. So yes, backsliders can be brought back to the truth. They can have forgiveness of sins. And we know that 1 John 2, 1 says that if anyone sins, he is an advocate of the Father. 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he's faithful to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So we're, we, if, as Christians, if we sin, we, we have an advocate. We have forgiveness available. We have uh, cleansing available. But we must confess. We must repent. We must forsake again. Uh, those are the ones, according to 1 John 1, I'm the only ones who have cleansing and forgiveness are those who confess. And the confusion comes in about that issue because so many people in Christianity today will say, well, I just confess every day. Yeah. Then every day I confess and I turn from it and I, go, I do the same thing tomorrow. Yeah. And so, I mean, the Lord knows our heart about that issue. Yeah. 
And if we're seeking Him, we're going to want to abide in Him and do His will, period. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would question someone doing that, whether they were ever genuinely, genuinely saved. And if they were, uh, whether they're being genuine in their confession or repentance. Because confession means to agree with God. God hates and you to agree with Him on that. And, uh, you know, repentance means to, you know, change your mind about these things. If you're doing it the same thing the next day, uh, one, one guy at Louisville recently, a Christian, asked me, he said, does nothing repentance have to do with only the present, not the future? And he said, well, if I repent today, I could sin in the future. I said, well, that's true. He said, well, it doesn't have to do with the future. Then I said, no, my repentance does have to do with what I believe about the future. I am committing in my heart and mind that I don't want to sin anymore. And if I'm changing my mind every day, I haven't really changed my mind in the first place. So there has to be some kind of victory in someone's life to even have any kind of assurance of salvation at all or have any kind of genuine repentance. First works, that's us. Yes. Yes. Right. That's right. Yeah. Go back to your first love. And, and the amazing thing about this counter in Louisville is that his, a lot of, we ran to a lot of people there who were against us, who were Christians, and these guys were, were coming against us with this idea of we sin every day and thought, word and deed. And this young man who was talking about this issue, he actually ended up agreeing with me in the end and disagreeing with his friends because he realized, no, there has to be some kind of change. There has to be some kind of victory. How how can you ever say you're a Christian if you never have any victory ever sin? What different are you than the world? There's no difference. So, let's see. Well, I was just going to share what you shared with me about um, about Samson and how you know because when I when I was first saved, I looked back on that and I was thinking about it. You know, relating to what we're talking about. When I first got saved, I struggled in a lot of ways that it was like, now that I look back on it, I'm thinking, was I really saved? Right. But I, I believe that I was mm -hmm. because I had the Holy Spirit in me convicting me right. heavily. Right. And, you know, before I remember having this heavy burden of sin, and we were just talking about this yesterday, like Pilgrim's Progress. That's right. how I saw, I, I really felt burdened with it. Yeah. You know, before I was, right before I was saved, I really started feeling this heavy darkness about my sin. Right. And, um... You said you felt like an elephant was on? Yes, every morning, because I was smoking and, you know, living the whole lifestyle I was living. I would wake up in the morning and I would feel like this heavy elephant on my chest every time mm. in the morning when I would wake up in, in my sins again. Right. And then the Lord, you know, kept stirring my heart, drawing me to it with this urgency to leave that, you know, behind. But even when I first got saved, there were things I was doing, and I was thinking back on it, like, I'm wondering if I was really supposed to be doing that, you know, or whatever. And the Lord, you know, allowed me to gradually repent of more and more as I, you know, was growing in the Lord. But right. um, when I first, Kevin encouraged me with this, talking about Samson, mm -hmm. you know, there was a little bit of striving that happened before the Holy Spirit actually left him. Right. There were some sins that he committed, mm -hmm. but the Holy Spirit was still convicting him. He was still in him. Right. Until the final time that the Holy Spirit finally left. Right. And we don't ever want to get to that point. We don't mm -hmm. know when that is. Right. So we shouldn't at all play with that. Right. But I think there are Christians that have, that are babies in the Lord that may struggle. Sure. 
certain ways and oh, yeah. you know, still be saved, but we don't know when that happens, I guess. Right, right. And that's why when people say that they're they're repenting so so often, I say, well, you really need to to make some adjustments here and make sure you're you're really repenting and examine yourself. Uh, and of course, I, I think that we can all say that, especially in the early on, that there's things that are going on if you don't have the right teaching, the right leadership, that there's going to be more of a struggle early on as a babe in Christ. But um, and so we need to be careful about not condemning those who are not condemned. Yeah, we need to be careful about that too. So as we believe in holiness and we believe in, in biblical perfection and, and and overcoming sin and, and what temptation does, we also need to be careful we're not condemning those who are God is not condemned. And that they're still they're still striving. Maybe they just need some help. Maybe they need someone to come along and teach them the truth yeah, about these issues. I don't know. About, uh, maybe, maybe. I, so many people subscribe every week, man. I don't yeah, keep up with it. Right, lower. Right. So when one pops up, I like okay. Yeah, let's go check him out. Right. Right, right, right. But um, uh, but he says struggling against sin, and he's he's got these other guys on there that are encouraging him, like the the true core. Oh yeah. Yeah. Guys that are encouraging him to in in his walk, but it looks like he's one of those. Okay. Like he's he's hey, I hate this. I don't want to do this anymore. And I'm angry about stuff. But he's kind of right. Don't look at that. Stay at that. Right. You want to spank it? Friend? Okay, be quiet, please. I think there's a difference between confession and repentance because people just have with people that go in there every week and confess. Uh-huh. They're just trying to get a little something off their shoulder. Right. But they go right around and turn and do the same. So repentance is a, a 180, a turning away from evil, and I don't ever want to do that again. So right. I think it's a difference. You can confess all day, but you know, if you don't really repent right. and, and go away from that. Sure. Yeah, I, I think I think people have twisted what confession really means. Um, they have the Catholic version of what it means to just say I did this, I did this. It's like repeating what you did. But but the Greek word homologeo means to agree with God about your sin. And as I, if I agree with God about my sin, I'm not just saying my sins to Him. I'm agreeing with Him that it's wicked and that He hates it and that I ought to hate it just like Him. So it's, it's almost like saying amen. I agree with you, God, about my sin. So I think the, the Greek word as translated as confession in 1 John 1, 9 goes a lot deeper in, than the shallow definition that Roman Catholics and most professing Christians give it. It has a lot more depth to it than just saying, God, to this and that today, just for please forgive me. And people think, oftentimes, they'll, say, they'll even think repentance means uh, saying you're sorry for sins or telling God what you did. No, repentance means you're changing your mind, like you said. You're deciding your heart mind. I don't want to do that anymore. Uh, but I think confession is, uh, in the biblical context, almost like a synonym for repentance. They're very, the Greek words behind them are very similar in what they mean. So it's, I, when we talk about confession to lost sinners, we need to make sure we, we help them understand what that means. Not just, God, I did this, that, this, and that. It's not Roman Catholic confession. Uh, so biblical confession, according to First John one one nine, does bring forgiveness and does bring cleansing, if it's done properly. Yes, that's what confession really is. It's, it's like repentance. You're agreeing with God about your sin, 
And God hates it, and God doesn't want anything to do with it, and you shouldn't want anything to do with it. He wants you to put it away. And that's what you should do. So, yeah, I, there's, there has to be some communication, uh, a clarification of what it means, that's for sure. Like with a lot of words. I mean, people don't know what repentance means either. They don't, they don't even know what fornication means. They, they think that's something else. That's Mike. Don't touch Mike, okay? There's Psalm 1911. It says, Thy word is a hidden in my heart. That I may not sin against you. When we think about that last portion, yeah. who's sinning against God? Yeah. Yes. It's very serious. Right. Any other questions or objections or things you want to add? Anyone? All right, let's stop there.